As we get into our passage today, and you might see this title up here, A New Kind of Slave, it, it really is fitting, or fitting's not the right word, it was almost like a, a providential, I guess, for me at least, to be thinking about what we're going to encounter in our text today, and not just in our text, but as a word from the Holy Spirit for our lives today, with what's been going on this week, with what, uh, what we just talked about, with this whole idea of, of uh, you know, we've got a new, potentially a very new legal reality in our country, and then trying to discern with, uh, with uh, wisdom, but also the Holy Spirit and the help of Jesus, you know, where, where this might lead our country and what it might mean for each one of us in terms of what God might, calling us, might be calling us to do. And, you know, I, th- I think that the, the thing that kind of sticks out for me about all this is... There are increasingly today a number of Christians, I would say very vocal Christians, who have kind of taken on the, um, the, the political approach to changing our country as the primary approach to changing our country. And I think if you talk to a lot of Christians 30 years ago and ask them, how would, you, how would we change this country for the better? What do you think most of them would say? I think a lot of Christians would say something like, well, if you want to change the country, you need to change hearts. So we should get out there and share the gospel. And if we share the gospel, the country will change. I think a lot of Christians today, if you ask them, what do you think is the best way to change our country? They would say, well, we need to, uh, we need to win back Congress and the Senate and the presidency, and we need to appoint judges, and we need to do this and that and the other. And, and let's be honest, those things do have an impact. They have a pretty massive impact, which we're seeing right now, right? The elections of the last, um, call it six years, have dramatically shifted, uh, potentially, our national conversation around an issue like abortion. That's massive. It's huge. But does that change hearts? Right? It, it, might, it might make some hearts more angry. Right? In fact, we're already seeing that taking place right now. Uh, I also read something this morning that struck me. And I don't know if any of you, you guys, you, you all follow the, the Christian pastor blogs, right? <laughs> Everyone here, you're up to speed. Do you guys know this, this pastor named Tim Keller in New York? You heard of this guy? He's a, he's a phenomenal preacher, really smart guy, but also really, I would say he's a wise, a wise person when it comes to engaging the culture. He planted a church in Manhattan. I guess this would have been, would this have been in the 80s or the early 90s? And basically, uh, against all odds, this evangelical church that was kind of just teaching scripture and doing lots of nerdy things like, like having Q&As after the sermon and, you know, all these types of things, um, and just kind of being traditional, normal, Bible-believing Christians that a lot of American Christians are, uh, they began to grow and grow and grow and grow. And he began to gain more prominence and influence, and then he was writing books, and people were reading his books and taking them to heart. And he has had a pretty amazing ministry. He's retired from pastoring, but he's still serving today. And over this last week... There was um, a writer, I think it was Sojourn Magazine, who he said, I used to love Tim Keller. I used to follow Tim Keller. 
but not anymore. And here was his reason. The culture has changed, and Tim Keller's view and version of Christianity doesn't work anymore. He said, Tim Keller planted his church in a neutral culture that neither loved nor hated Christianity. But now we live in a culture where there's attacks against Christianity. And so this kind of kind and civil and reasonable faith doesn't work anymore. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Kind, civil, reasonable faith doesn't work anymore. Now, of course... In response, Tim Keller said, it didn't feel neutral when we were planting our church in Manhattan in the late 80s and early 90s. They were kicked out of buildings. They were mocked in the media. They were, uh, they were not allowed to meet in certain public facilities because they were Christian. Uh, he said, that didn't feel very neutral to me. It felt pretty antagonistic to the faith. And in fact, from a legal perspective, New York is far more open to Christianity today than it was 15 or 20 years ago. Because now civil, the, the Supreme Court has ruled in the favor of Christians and churches uh, in the conflicts that they were having with the government. And, and also, so like, for example, churches could not meet in schools in New York City for decades. And now they can. Because, hey, you can't discriminate based on religion. And so in some ways, the culture is more open now than it was then. Uh, but, but even if that weren't true, even if that were not true, the idea that we should abandon what God has called us to be, right? You know, what does God require of you to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God? So being kind and civil and reasonable, that doesn't work anymore, is not an option for believers in Jesus Christ. You can't just abandon that and become uh, like an antagonistic, I I don't know how to say it, but religious jerk because you feel like you're losing power. You can't do it. Now, what does any of this have to do with being a new kind of slave? Well, there's misconceptions that we have about freedom in America, and Paul's going to correct some of them by the leading of the Holy Spirit right now as we look at Romans 6 starting in verse 15. So the, these verses have huge implications for our individual personal lives and huge implications for what it means as a community to live out uh, the calling of being the body of Christ in the world. Okay, So we're going to look at, those, look at it from those two lenses. All right, so uh, in Romans, if you recall, in Romans 5... Uh, Paul said this. He said, I'm looking for it right now. He says, Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the end of verse 5. And so in the beginning of chapter 6, Paul asked this rhetorical question, probably one that he's heard many times, and he said, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And his answer is no. We shouldn't keep on sinning so that grace may increase. And in verse 14, he says this. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law but under grace. And what happens here is Paul makes this claim about sin, 
not being your master and not being under law, but under grace. And he almost has this, he has to kind of pause in his in argument or his delivery of, of his message to the Romans, and he has to explain that. And he explains that, again, by asking questions, these rhetorical questions. And so we get one of these uh, questions in, cha- in verse 15 of chapter 6, where we're starting today, and then we get one of these questions in chapter 7, in verse 7. So we're not going to cover both the questions, but we're going to cover the first question today in this parenthetical argument that Paul is making about the law. And so the question that he has for us today is, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And this is a question that I think a lot of us internally we wrestle with. Like, you know, whether you're saying uh, to the Scripture or to God or to Paul or to me as I preach this, well, hey, if you keep talking about not being under law but under grace, if you're saying that we're not sinners uh, not because we stopped sinning, but because we have died to sin and we're alive in Christ, if we're saying that we're not under the obligations of the law any longer, doesn't that just give people freedom to sin more? Can anyone, do you, do you, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but like, do you feel that tension? Do you feel that tension? And last week we talked about this concept of being dead in Christ. In our baptism, we died with Christ. And in our baptism, we were raised with Christ, meaning that when he died, we also died with him. And when he was raised from the dead, we were also raised from the dead. But we died to an old kind of life, a life that we've been calling in Adam, and we've been raised to a new kind of life that we've been calling in Christ, right? And so the question is, doesn't that just give us more freedom to sin? And I think... um, the problem with that idea is that it actually forgets a couple of things. It, we have some common misconceptions about sin. And, and we're going to spend the rest of the day, or rest of, not the whole day, <laughs> the rest of our time together, and we could take the whole day, how long the Q&A is, addressing these two misconceptions. One is the misconception that law limits sin. Okay? Law limits sin. And the other misconception is that grace frees us to sin. Okay? And I think a lot of us do believe that if someone's doing the wrong thing, what we need to do is put a rule over them. Now, I'll say this. Uh, I have believed this misconception more in my parenting than I ever did anywhere else in life. Some people believe it more in legal battles. Some people believe it more <coughs> with politics. Some people believe it more with their spirituality. But many, many, many of us, if not all of us, begin with the belief that law limits sin. And if law limits sin, then by definition, grace frees us to sin. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let's look at these in turn. All right, so we just read verse 15 of chapter 6 in Romans. I hope you have your Bible open. But it says this. Uh, shall we sin because we are under law, not under law, but under grace? By no means. No. Can't. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, 
or to obedience, which, which leads to righteousness. So Paul is bringing up again this idea of slavery. He said, when we die to sin, we are no longer slaves to sin. Sin is no longer our master. But he says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to be obedient to them, then you are slaves to them. So he says, he's basically making this simple statement. And even if you are released from slavery, if you continue to obey the old master, then he is still your master. Right? Can you imagine a scenario? Could you imagine a scenario where, where a person is working um, for a master, for a slave master, as a slave, and then someone comes to them and says, friend, rejoice, I have purchased your freedom. You can leave this place and have a life of your own. You can work for yourself. You can do whatever you want. Go where you please. And the person says, thank you, thank you so much, but I'm happy right here where I am. I think I'll keep working for free under harsh conditions and obligated to do what my master tells me to do. Can you imagine a scenario like that? I can, because in history that has happened. That has absolutely happened. Uh, in more than one occasion, in more than one culture, in more than one time and place, that has happened. And in fact, in ancient Roman times, where slavery had a very different implication from what it had in the United States before the Civil War, where it wasn't racial and it wasn't, there were, there were some rights of slaves, some uh, limited rights of slaves, uh, and not an absolute ownership from the master, uh, it was common for one of two things to happen. There were times when a person would be freed by their master, but maybe their wife and children were still slaves. And so they would willingly choose to serve, continue to serve this master so that they wouldn't have to leave their family. And there were also situations where people were released from slavery but they had certain obligations they had to fulfill, continue to fulfill for a certain period of time, maybe a period of two years before they were fully freed. So they would gain their freedom, but then they had certain obligations to essentially pay off their own freedom over the next couple of years. And so there were many situations where slaves would stay with their masters. And Paul's alert to this, and he says, he says, if you... If you go back to your master after you've been freed, then you haven't really been freed at all. It's still your master. And the implication is this. If you think that grace just allows you to sin more, what you're really saying is that you're not under grace at all, but you're still under sin. You're still a servant of sin if you continue in sin. You may have been set free by Christ, but you live as if you have not been set free. And then he goes on to say this, uh, and he makes the point. This is the case whether you're slaves to sin or whether you're slaves to obedience and righteousness. Either way, the one you serve is your master. And I think we can understand this, right? But here's where it, gets, uh, it starts to, to get really interesting. Verse 19, I'm using an example from everyday life. Uh, I'm sorry, I skipped a bit. But thanks be to God, verse 17, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. 
You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, in the ancient Roman culture, it's one thing to be freed from slavery. It's another thing to be bought by a different master. If you're freed from slavery, you often have obligations that linger. And you can choose to stay with that master if you want to. But if you're bought by a new master, then it severs all of your obligations and opportunities with the old master. So Paul says it's not just enough to be set free from sin. It's, it's equally important that you now become a slave to righteousness. Now, does anybody, just if, you, if someone just walked up to you and said, do you want to be a slave? Who would say, yeah, that sounds great. That's not, yeah, I want to be a slave. No one, right? No takers? So here's the difficult thing. God is asking you to be a taker. God is saying, you're, it's, not a, it's not about being a slave or not being a slave. It's about either being a slave to one master or the slave to another. In this world... You're going to be a slave, but he invites you to be a new kind of slave. So he just says it right there. He says, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance, right? The one you obey. The one you obey is your master. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, if you, when you were a slave to sin, you had to obey your master which is sin, if you are a slave to righteousness, now you need to obey your new master, which is righteousness. And now to verse 19. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now you offer yourselves to holiness. And this is so key. When you were slaves to sin... You are free from the control of righteousness. When you are slaves to sin, you are free from the control of righteousness. And again, we often don't think about liberty and freedom like this. We think that either we're enslaved or we're free. But in this weird kind of uh, twist, slavery brings a certain type of freedom. So imagine, and uh, let's think about Roman slavery again. So you have a master, and that master gives you a task to do. And let's say that master tells you, go into the city, purchase food for our meals for the day, and then come back. Okay? That's your task. And then someone on the street walks up to you and says, hey, slave, come with me and help me unload my cart. Are you going to do what they say? No. Why not? They're not your master. You are freed from obligations to this person. You can, they, they could be a person of prestige. They could be a person of power. But they are not your master. You are freed from obligation to them. Right? It, it, would, have to, it would have to be... Essentially, 
your master's master would be the only one who could get you to do something else because you know, well, no, I have to obey. I have to obey the one that I'm obligated to serve. And that means I don't have to obey you. And so every slavery, every type of slavery, brings its own type of freedom. And here's the way he describes it. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. He said, when you were a slave to sin, you didn't have to do what righteousness said. Right? You didn't. You're under no obligation. And this is something that also comes up for me um, periodically when I'm talking with folks. And they say, oh, you know, this person this person's doing a horrible thing. And I think, well, like, are they a believer? No. Well, then they're acting the way they're supposed to act. Unbelievers are not supposed, supposed to act like believers because unbelievers are not slaves of obedience and righteousness and holiness. So why would we expect them to act like they are? And the way we often say it is, oh, well, they're, you know, they're not saved, they're not redeemed, they don't have the Holy Spirit, um, they're still sinners, you know, whatever language we would use. But it's equally appropriate to use this language that Paul uses in Romans 6. Well, they're not, they're not slaves to righteousness, so why would they obey that master? The real question is why you, as a slave of righteousness, acts like a slave of sin. That would be the real question, right? And the result, uh, and, and keep in mind, the result of living a life as a slave of sin is death. That's the result of that life. That's, what that, that's the fruit of that life. And then in verse 22, but now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Right? So it's not that we, we talked about last week and we sang about it, how God has set us free. Right? We're free in Christ. But we're not free in Christ in the sense that we have no obligations. We've been freed from, a one, from one type of slavery to another. And the Bible uses this language in other, or this concept in other places with different language, but we don't see it because we're not attuned to thinking that way. So in Colossians, when, God said, when Paul says that, that God has re, uh, taken you from the kingdom of darkness and put you in the kingdom of the Son whom he loves, that's, similar, that's a similar concept. We forget that to be in a kingdom means to be subject to a king. So when we were in the kingdom of darkness, we were subject to darkness. But when we're brought into the kingdom of his son, we are subject to the son. It's the same concept, but we miss it because we don't think in those terms. We just think, oh, I left one country and I joined another one. But what makes a kingdom a kingdom? A king. Without a king, it's not a kingdom. We think in terms of geographical boundaries. Paul was thinking in terms of rulership and authority. He says, you're no longer under the authority of this darkness, the devil, the sin, all this stuff. Now you're under the authority of light and Christ and goodness. It's the same concept here, but it's very explicit. But here's the thing. He says, "Uh, but now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. And the benefit you reap leads to holiness for the result is eternal life. And we get this famous verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. 
You guys remember that verse? You learned that verse? And, and most likely, in what context did you learn it? I learned it in the Roman road. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ through some very specific verses in Romans. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And it's almost like a call. Hey, don't keep sinning, because if you keep sinning, you're going to die. Instead, follow Jesus. Take the gift of Jesus so you can live. And there's a sense in which that's true. But in the context of this passage, Paul's actually saying something subtly different. He's not talking to people who aren't Christians who need to put their faith in Jesus Christ. He's talking to people who are already Christians, and he's just reminding them of the natural consequences of the different paths that they've been on in their life. Right? He says, you were on a path as a slave of sin that led to death. And now you're on a path as a slave to Christ that leads to life. So this isn't about getting unbelievers to put their faith in Jesus. This is about reminding believers that they are in Jesus and that they don't have to live as a slave. To, they don't have to treat slave a sin like a master any longer. And just as when they were slaves to sin, they were free from the obligations to righteousness, when they're slaves to righteousness, they're free from the obligations of sin. That's the freedom that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. And that's a pretty powerful, that's a pretty powerful concept because when you think about it, no matter where you are in life, no matter where you are in faith, no matter what your beliefs are, every single one of us is a slave and every single one of us is free. The question is, what are we obligated to and what are we free from? That is not how we think about freedom in our culture. And it messes us up. So the question, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? No. That's the stupidest thing. If you, like, if you really understand what it's about, that's the stupidest thing that you could, could think. I'm not saying you're stupid. I mean, we're all... We all could learn, learn a little more, right? That's what this is about. But it's like, hey, if you understand what grace is, you would never say that grace frees you to sin. Grace frees you from sin. It doesn't, grace has never freed anyone to sin in the history of the world. The misunderstanding of grace has allowed people to remain under that old master. Truly being under grace is to understand that you're under the master of righteousness, that you're, you're a slave to Christ, a slave to God, a slave to holiness, a slave to obedience, and you are now free from the obligations of sin. It's such a different concept. And then what Paul does, he says, let me give you another analogy. If this one's not working for it, like no one likes to be a slave, right? Let's use another analogy. Okay, let's talk about marriage. There's no slavery in marriage, right? Marriage is fun. Marriage is great. It's easy. There's no work involved. You don't, you're not obligated to anybody. It's fantastic, right? No, he's just really using two analogies that are the same analogy, but with different emphases. 
And this is where we get this passage, Romans 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. You guys see the picture, right? The law of marriage binds you until death do us part, right? At death, we are parted, and we are no longer bound to our spouse. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. What he's saying is like this. You were married to sin, but instead of sin dying, you died. And you've been raised again, and now you're free to marry another. Have any of you guys seen that TV show on Netflix? It's called Manifest. Is that with the plane? You've seen it. So there's this plane, and this plane is traveling. uh, And in the middle of the flight, there's turbulence. And then they come out of the turbulence, and they land, and everyone's freaking out. Like, why are they freaking out? Well, this plane has been missing for five and a half years, and all of a sudden it shows up. And to the people on the plane, it's been a regular flight, but to the whole rest of the world, five and a half years have passed. And as you can imagine, there are some tricky social and relational situations that, that result uh, in, in this. So, for example, there's a man and a son, a father and a son, who come home who was on a different flight from his wife and his daughter, his, and he, they've got twin son and daughter. Well, now this, the daughter is five and a half years older than her twin brother. And you've got a wife who thought she was a widow, and she's with another man. And you think, what should happen here? What should happen? And of course, he didn't die, but she thought he was dead. So did she do anything wrong? No. And this guy grapples with the fact that, hey, I hate what's happening, but she didn't do anything wrong. We've got to work through this. And to complicate matters, uh, she finds out very shortly after they return that she's pregnant. Well, whose kid is this? Right? Super complex. But she didn't do anything. Well, she should have gotten married to the guy, right? Let's, that was wrong. But there's nothing wrong with her thinking her husband's dead and, marrying, and being with someone else, right? If the flight had been a normal flight... And in the few hours that he was in the air, she had gotten together with another guy and maybe was having his child. Different story, right? Different story. He says, look, you died, so you're no longer in the marriage with sin. You've been freed from all obligations. All commitments have been severed. And when you were raised to life, you were married to Jesus. So now you have new commitments and new obligations. Remember when I told you that a a baptism is like a funeral and a birthday party? It's also a wedding party. 
Okay, let's just super uh, complicate this metaphor. Your baptism was your funeral because that's when you did the ceremony recognizing your death with Christ when you go down. It's your birthday party because it recognizes the moment and honors the moment when you were raised to life with Christ. So it's a party celebrating that. And it's also a wedding party that acknowledges that you are, and I would say, betrothed to Jesus Christ and the final wedding uh, is going to take place when Jesus comes back. But this is a party recognizing that you are betrothed to Christ. And so... Your baptism is a pretty awesome party. It's a pretty awesome moment. Your funeral, your birthday party, and your wedding party. And then it says, in order that we might bear fruit for God. The NIV, I think, is being slightly, slightly PC here. I think the better, more natural translation would be in order that we might bear offspring for God. But that sounds a little weird. But that's what it says. That we might bear offspring for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit or bore offspring for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So here's the deal. Just like everyone's a slave, everyone's married to someone. The Bible uses not it, but him. Everyone's married to someone, and your offspring reflect who you're married to. So again, it would be really weird. The idea that if you're under grace and not under law, then you're free to sin is like saying... My husband died, and I'm married again, but for some reason, all the children I keep having look like my dead husband. I don't know why I went like that. That's weird. That doesn't happen. Short of like scientific medical intervention, that does not happen. You do not keep bearing children for your deceased husband. You can only bear children for your current husband. And so when we continue in sin, it's like we're bearing children for our deceased husband. And guys, yes, I know that sounds weird, but deal with it. That's what, it, that's what it's like. That's what Paul says. You're bearing offspring. You're bearing offspring of death instead of bearing offspring of life. So shall we... Shall we sin more because we're under grace and not under law? No. It just doesn't even make sense. Now, obviously, these metaphors break down a little bit because in some sense, it is literally impossible to bear offspring for your deceased husband. But it is possible for us in this life to... It's like we forget that we died and we forget that we're no longer married to sin and we forget that sin is no longer our slave master and it's like we, we go shack up with sin again for lack of a better phrase. And then all of a sudden we start bearing the fruit of sin instead of bearing the fruit of Christ. 
And in just like with the slavery issue, uh, slaves to sin have to obey, they have to sin, and slaves to sin are free from being righteous. Slaves to righteousness are bound to righteousness, and they're free from the obligations to sin. So when you're married to sin, you have obligations to sin, and you're, and you're, you're forsaking all others. But then when you become married to righteousness, you also need to forsake all others because that's an obligation of marriage. And as Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other or you'll love one and despise the other. You can't serve two masters. You cannot be a slave to Christ or a slave to obedience or a slave to righteousness and a slave to sin. You have to choose. Now, interestingly, um, is God a slave? Can God sin? God is freed from the obligations of sin. Why is that? Must God be righteous? God is a slave to righteousness, and he's freed from sin. Jesus was a slave and is a slave to righteousness and is freed from sin. So what Paul is telling us here, because we often think of, well, I'm a Christian, I've been forgiven of my sins, now I need to work really hard to stop sinning, right? And what, God, what Paul and the Holy Spirit and the Scripture is telling us here is, It's not about trying not to sin anymore. It's about just recognizing and stepping more fully into your alignment with God and Jesus Christ. And this is why Romans 8, which we're getting to, says it is our destiny. You're predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. That is what sanctification is all about. Sanctification is not about trying harder to follow the rules. It's about recognizing more fully that you are aligned with Jesus, the Son of God, in his own slavery to righteousness. Why would you be a slave to the same thing Jesus is a slave to? To mix our metaphors? Because you're married to him now, and you can't have different masters. And so a lot of this comes down to, you know, what is it? Who am I? And whose am I? Not what do I do, not what's, and and like hear me well on this, it's not even about what's my character. It's about what's my identity and who do I belong to. And the great thing about being a slave to Christ is he's the most loving, generous, gracious, caring, attentive uh, master that you could ever have. Such to the point that he invites you, as he does in, uh, uh, in, in the book of John, he invites you to abide with him. That he will be in you and you will be in him. So often our attention is focused on fixing our, our problems, fixing our sin, fixing our, uh, our desires. And Jesus is like, you know, like, I, I appreciate that, but it's not helpful. 
Like, just focus your attention on being with me. And when your focus is on being with me, all that other stuff that's over there, it's just going to get further and further away. But it is a process. That's why God says, and that's why uh, what God is saying is that our, our destiny is to be conformed to the image of Christ. You're not yet fully formed to the image of Christ. And what we're going to get into next week is what the role of the flesh is in that. So here it says in verse 5, For we were in the realm of the flesh. We were in the realm of the flesh. So what in the world is the realm of the flesh? And that's what Paul's going to address in the next section. He's going to ask that second question that I talked about. And the second question is, is the law sinful? And he's going to explain why it's not that the law is sinful. It's that you're in the realm of the flesh. And the realm of the flesh takes something good and wonderful and turns it into something horrible. But it's this whole idea that law was not intended to limit sin. Law is intended to increase sin. Not because the law is bad, but because we needed to have our sin increased so that we would no longer, that we would break the... I'm going to give you a little preview of next week. The flesh, living in the flesh, is the desire to be righteous by the law and the inability to do so. It's those two things together. The increase of sin breaks hopefully breaks our, our false belief that if we just keep trying harder, we'll get there. And it finally brings us to a place of humble acceptance, humble submission, humble surrender to the Lord and to his grace and to his love. So that's where we're going next week. But this week, right? you're married to someone, you're a slave to someone, so... Here's the thing. Should we sin more because we're under grace and not under law? No. Grace does not free us to sin. Grace frees us from sin through Christ's death. And a new marriage to Christ bearing offspring for God. And that offspring for God is life. It's holiness. It's eternal life. Right? You were, you were, when you were a slave to sin, it led to death. But now as a slave to Christ, it brings you to life. And so... It would be like saying, now that I've been healed my, by my doctor, I'm free to kill myself. No. Now that you've been healed by your doctor, you're free to live. Don't go back to the things that bring death and bring shame, as Paul says there. Go to the things that bring eternal life. And by eternal life, as just to close, by eternal life, he doesn't mean living forever. He means the quality of life that is the, the life of the kingdom. The quality of life that God designed for the kingdom. That's eternal life. He says, don't go back to death. Now you've been freed to go to life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we, are, uh, we have such a hard time. We have such a hard time remembering who we are Remembering whose we are. We have such a difficulty sometimes with, um, with putting our trust in more rules and regulations and laws instead of actually just trusting that if we walk with you, we'll, we'll go the way we need to go. And we'll do the things we need to do.
And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help to get this, um, this logical kind of belief, idea, concept, help to break that in us because it's so firmly embedded in our 